back, Hemming Face Brains, to the Hemming Face Brain podcast. It's the podcast where we do things the Hemming way. What are we talking about here today, guys? We're talking about chapter 83. As I reposition my microphone in front of my face. There we go. Uh, what was I saying about this one? Cronshaw, not in good nick. Will he see his poems become a success? That was the discussion prompt. Jan Brunt said, poetry is never popular. Good thing Cronshaw will kick off before his life's work is totally ignored. Could say the same about a lot of art, couldn't you? But poetry probably especially. It's a difficult one to find a market for. And there's a little bit of a... um, No, yeah, no, I was going to say there's like... I can think of a couple of current poetry books that are popular. Milk and Honey comes to mind. Um, not that I, I... I actually have read a bit of that and did not find it to be particularly remarkable. Um, there's a few... Uh, what am I trying to say? Commercially successful poets at the moment, which is a strange thing. Um, but I think, yeah, you're probably right. The majority of poets... I doubt would find much recognition for their for their artwork. Jan Brunt said, I had a good friend who was a poet and recently drank himself to death. Oh my god. Um that's shocking. <laughs> that's that's um no, like literally shocking. I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh he died a bit suddenly, instead of a slow decline like Cronshaw, but this chapter was quite affecting for me for this reason. Yeah, I bet. Um, they saw they both saw life from a fatalist point of view and had no intention of living into a sober old age. Um, wow, Jen, that's that's terrible. Why don't you share some of your friend's poems here on the subreddit? Um, yeah, yeah, please. Um, <clears throat> I don't know if you're comparing your friend to Cronshaw in the whole your statement about his life's work being totally ignored, but we can at least appreciate it here. That's something. Swim said the mum fishy said sorry for your loss. Jan Brunt said he died young like his heroes. That's a nice sentiment too. Uh, if you're comfortable, Jan, we'd love to read some. Laura Weistich said this. This book has so far been about failing particularly in artistic pursuits, and I can't see Cronshaw as being the exception. Um, yeah, <laughs> I think you're right. And I think you're right. It, it has been about failing in in artistic pursuits. Um, there's more I can just off the top of my head, I'm thinking of three examples of it. There's probably far more. Um I'm thinking of Philip. I'm thinking of what was the girl's name that loved Philip and she killed herself, and now Cronshaw. But I'm sure there's more. Um. Yeah, I think there's an attitude towards art, which is um, I don't know if it's the healthiest attitude of like if if you're not making your living from it and being renowned in your field then you are not creating worthwhile art. But um, 
I would disagree. I mean, especially now that the world is so big, there's so many people and there's so many artists releasing work independently that um, it's just a, there's just so much art out there that it's hard to have the biggest piece of art going. You know, I'm just using art as a generic term. But to have the biggest song in the world at the moment, you know, you're competing against so many songs. Whereas 50 years ago, to have the biggest current song, you know, it only had to be the best song out of, I don't know, a couple of thousand maybe. But uh, not today. Not That's not the way it works today. There's probably several million current songs on any given day. Uh, and the same can be said of, of well, of a lot of um, artistic mediums. Uh, I'm a bit rambly tonight, I've just noticed. I don't really know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, what else? Is that? Oh, that's all the conversation. What was my discussion prompt? Will his poem become, poems become a success? I'd love for that to happen for Cronshaw. I'd love to see him stop drinking. You know, I've just watched um, the, the Queen's Gambit on, um, on Netflix. Really, really good. I really liked it. Um, and it's one of many films and shows where the main character's sort of personal struggle is with alcohol. And I always find that such a frustrating thing to watch. Someone battle alcoholism where, you know, it's almost like you have to stop doing this or you will die. You have to stop doing this or you will fail, you know, or whatever the stakes are. But it's sort of like essentially life or death. And the way that they just cannot not choose death. (laughs) You know, the alcohol, the, the draw of the alcoholic addiction is so strong. And um, it's, for, I suppose as an outsider to it, I understand it's a disease. But um, it's so frustrating to watch. You're just thinking, you just have to stop doing that thing. And you'll be fine. Um, but then I suppose, again, it's, it's a dangerous drug to kick alcohol. Um, physically dangerous. A lot of people will, um, you know, be crippled or killed by the withdrawal symptoms. It's very, very dangerous. Even something like, um, you know, heroin or serious hard drugs, um, they're not as risky to quit in terms of um, sort of mortality, I suppose. Okay, anyway, um, bit of a downer tonight, hey? But that's okay. We're talking poems, we're talking poetry, we're talking death, and we're talking the bottle. And what three things, the holy trinity, (laughs) you know, um, it's a dark place to explore, but um, I don't know, it's a deep place to explore as well. Let's keep reading, shall we? What are we up to here? 84. Um, are we up to... Yeah, we are up to 84. One second, I'm just going to have a look forward here. Okay, it's a medium-length chapter. 
Let's rock and roll, hey, let's go. 84 goes like this. At the new year, Philip became dresser in the surgical outpatients department. The work was of the same character as that which he had just been engaged on. But with the greater directness which surgery has than medicine, and a larger proportion of the patients suffered from those two diseases which a supine public allows in its prudishness to be spread broadcast. The assistant surgeon for whom Philip dressed was called Jacobs. He was a short, fat man with an exuberant joviality, a bald head, and a loud voice. He had a cockney accent and was generally described by the students as an awful bounder, but his cleverness, both as a surgeon and as a teacher, caused some of them to overlook this. He had also a considerable fastidiousness, which he exercised impartially on the patients and on the students. He took a great pleasure in making his dresses look foolish, since they were ignorant, nervous, and could not answer as if he were their equal. This was not very difficult. He enjoyed his afternoons with the home truths he permitted himself, much more than students, the students who had put up with them with a smile. One day a case came up of a boy with a club foot. His parents wanted to know whether anything could be done. Mr. Jacobs turned to Philip. You'd better take this case, Carrie. It's a subject you ought to know something about. Ah, uh, sorry. Just got distracted there by my own thoughts. Philip flushed all the more because the surgeon spoke obviously with a humorous intention and his brow beaten Dresses laughed obsequiously. It was in point of fact a subject which Philip, since coming to the hospital, had studied with anxious attention. He had read everything in the library which treated of telepes in its various forms. He made the boy take off his book and stocking. He was fourteen with a snub nose, blue eyes and a freckled face. His father explained that they wanted something done if possible. It was such a hindrance to the kid in earning his living. Philip looked at him curiously. He was a jolly boy, not at all shy, but talkative, and with a cheekiness which his father reproved. He was much interested in his foot. Alright, before we see what Philip says, I need to write something down on a piece of paper in front of me. Sorry, while I was reading, I was kind of like, half of my brain was reading, and the other half was thinking about something I need to do tomorrow. Well, actually, a couple of things. And I'm just writing a to-do list for tomorrow before I forget. <laughs> Won't be a sec. So I'm, um, I'm drawing into the close of the year with Launchpad, my small business. And I've just realized there's a couple of things that kind of dropped off my radar. And I just remembered them. And I thought, oh, I've got to order those books for that school. And I've got to remember to promote this and that. And I thought, if I don't write it down, I'll forget, and it'll slip past for another week or so. So I've just done that mid-chapter. Thanks for waiting while I did that. Okay, let's continue. What's Philip going to say to this club-footed boy? It's only for the looks of the thing, you know, he said to Philip. I don't find it no trouble. Be quiet, Ernie, said his father. There's too much gas about you. Philip, ex Philip examined the foot and passed his hand slowly over the shapelessness of it. 
He could not understand why the boy felt none of the humiliation which always oppressed himself. He wondered why he could not take his deformity with that philosophic indifference. Presently, Mr. Jacobs came up to him. The boy was sitting on the edge of a couch. The surgeon and Philip stood on each side of him, and in a semicircle, crowding around, were students. With accustomed brilliancy, Jacobs gave a graphic little discourse upon the club foot. He spoke of its varieties and of the forms which followed upon different anatomical conditions. I suppose you've got Talip's equinus, he said, turning suddenly to Philip. Yes. Philip felt the eyes of his fellow students rest on him, and he cursed himself because he could not help blushing. He felt the sweat start up in the palms of his hands. The surgeon spoke with the fluency due to long practice and with the admirable perspicacity which distinguished him. He was tremendously interested in his profession. But Philip did not listen. He was only wishing that the fellow would get done quickly. Suddenly he realised that Jacobs was addressing him. You don't mind taking off your sock for a moment, Carey? Philip felt a shudder pass through him. He had an impulse to tell the surgeon to go to hell, but he had not the courage to make a scene. He feared his brutal ridicule. He forced himself to appear indifferent. Not a bit, he said. He sat down and unlaced his boot. His fingers were trembling and he thought he should never untie the knot. He remembered how they had forced him at school to show his foot and the misery which had eaten into his soul. He keeps his feet nice and clean, doesn't he? said Jacobs in his rasping cockney voice. The attendant students giggled. Philip noticed that the boy whom they were examining looked down at his foot with eager curiosity. Jacobs' foot Sorry, Jacobs took the foot in his hands and said, Yes, that's what I thought. I see you've had an operation. When you were a child, I suppose. He went on with his fluent explanations. The students leaned over and looked at the foot. Two or three examined it minutely when Jacobs let it go. When you've quite done, said Philip, with a smile, ironically. He could have killed them all. He thought how jolly it would be to jab a chisel. He didn't know why that particular instrument came into his mind into their necks. What beasts men were. He wished he could believe in hell so as to comfort himself with the thought of the horrible tortures which would be theirs. Mr. Jacobs turned his attention to treatment. He talked partly to the boy's father and partly to the students. Philip put on his sock and laced his boot. At last the surgeon finished, but he seemed to have an afterthought and turned to Philip. You know, I think it might be worth your while to have an operation, of course, I couldn't give you a normal foot, but I think I can do something. You might think about it, and when you want a holiday, you can just come into the hospital for a bit. Philip had often asked himself whether anything could be done, but his distaste for any reference to the subject had prevented him from consulting any of the surgeons at the hospital. His reading told him that whatever might have been done when he was a small boy and then treatment of telips was not as, as skillful as in the present day. There was small chance now of any great benefit. Still, it would be worthwhile if an operation made it possible for him possible for him to wear a more ordinary boot and to limp less. He remembered how passionately he had prayed for the miracle which his uncle had assured him was possible to omnipotence. He smiled ruefully. I was rather a simple soul in those days, he thought. Towards the end of February, it was clear that Cronshaw was going 
much worse. He was no longer able to get up. He lay in bed insisting that the window should be closed always and refused to see a doctor. He would take little nourishment but demanded whiskey and cigarettes. Philip knew that he should have neither but Cronshaw's argument was unanswerable. I dare say they are killing me. I don't care. You've warned me. You've done all that was necessary. I ignore your warning. Give me something to drink and be damned to you. Leonard up John Blue in two or three times a week and there was something of the dead leaf in his appearance which made the world exactly descriptive of the manner of his appearance. He was a weedy looking fellow of five and thirty with long pale hair and a white face. He had the look of a man who lived too little in the open air. He wore a hat like a dissenting minister's. Philip disliked him for his patronising manner and was bored by his fluent conversation. Leonard Upjohn liked to hear himself talk. He was not sensitive to the interest of his listeners, which he, which is the first requisite of the good talker, and he never realised that he was telling people what they already knew. With measured words he told Philip what to think of Rodin, Albert Semaine, and Caesar Frank. Philip's charwoman only came in for an hour in the morning and since Philip was obliged to be at the hospital all day, Cronshaw was left much alone. Upjohn told Philip that he thought someone should remain with him, but he did not offer to make it possible. It's dreadful to think of that great poet alone. He might die without a soul at hand. I think he very probably will, said Philip. How can you be so callous? Why don't you come and do your work here every day and then you'd be near if you wanted anything, asked Philip dryly. I, my dear fellow, I can only work in the surroundings I'm used to and besides, I go out so much. Upjohn was also a little put out because Philip had brought Cronshaw to his own rooms. I wish you had left him in Soho, he said, with a wave of his long thin hands. There was a touch of romance in that sordid attic. I could even bear it if it were whopping or Shoreditch, but the respectability of Kennington, what a place for a poet to die. Cronshaw was often so ill-humoured that Philip could only keep his temper by remembering all the time that his irritability was a symptom of the disease. Upjohn came sometimes before Philip was in, and then Cronshaw would complain of him bitterly. Upjohn listened with complacency. The fact is that Carey has no sense of beauty, he smiled. He has a middle-class mind. He was very sarcastic to Philip, and Philip exercised a good deal of self-control in his dealings with him. But one evening, he could not contain himself. He had had a hard day at the hospital, and was tired out. Leonard Upjohn came to him while he was making himself a cup of tea in the kitchen, and said that Cronshaw was complaining of Philip's insistence that he should have a doctor. Don't you realise that you are enjoying a very rare, a very exquisite privilege, you ought to do everything in your power, surely, to show your sense of the greatness of your trust. It's a rare and exquisite privilege which I can ill afford, said Philip. Whenever there was any question of money, Leonard Upjohn assumed a slightly disdainful expression. His sensitive temperament was offended by the reference. There's something fine in Cronshaw's attitude, and you disturb it by your importunity. You should make allowances for the delicate imaginings which you cannot feel. Philip's face darkened. 
Let us go into Cronshaw, he said frigidly. The poet was lying on his back reading a book with a pipe in his mouth. The air was musty and the room, notwithstanding Philip's tidying up, had the bedraggled look which seemed to accompany Cronshaw wherever he went. He took off his spectacles as they came in. Philip was in a towering rage. Upjohn tells me you've been complaining to him because I've urged you to have a doctor, he said. I want you to have a doctor because you may die any day, and if you hadn't been seen by anyone, I shouldn't be able to get a certificate. There'd have been an inquest, and I should have be blamed for not calling a doctor in. I hadn't thought of that. I thought you wanted me to see a doctor for my sake and not for your own. I'll see a doctor when you like. Philip did not answer, but gave an almost imperceptible shrug of the shoulders. Cronshaw, watching him, gave a little chuckle. Don't look so angry, my dear. I know very well you want to do everything you can for me. Let's see your doctor. Perhaps he can do something for me. And, at any rate, it'll comfort you. He turned his eyes to Upjohn. You're a damned fool, Leonard. Why do you want to worry the boy? He has quite enough to do to put up with me. You'll do nothing more for me than write a pretty article about, my, about me after my death. I know you. Next day, Philip went to Dr. Tyrell. He felt that he was the sort of man to be interested by the story, and as soon as Tyrell was free of his day's work, he accompanied Philip to Kennington. He could only agree with what Philip had told him. The case was hopeless. I'll take you, him into the hospital if you like, he said. He can have a small ward. Nothing would induce him to come. You know, he may die any minute, or else he may get another attack of pneumonia. Philip nodded. Dr. Tyrell made one or two suggestions and promised to come again when Philip wanted him to. He left his address. When Philip went back to Cronshaw, he found him quietly reading. He did not trouble to inquire what the doctor had asked, had said. Are you satisfied now, dear boy? he asked. I suppose nothing will induce you to do any of the things Tyrell advised. Nothing. Smiled, Cronshaw. Alrighty, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Cronshaw. Uh, I mean, he's just been a poet, I suppose, isn't he? He's just been, he's just ready to die, I think. Um, have your say on that one at the subreddit. Thank you all very much for listening and I will see you tomorrow.